Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1277, air date July 26, 2023. Good morning, everyone. It's Dr. Shiva Adure. We're going to be doing a very, very important topic today that's been very personal to me, but it's also more than personal. It affects, I would say, every human on the planet. And we're going to be talking about fighting the real caste system. And this caste system extends from India to America, and I've had a and, personal uh, which will be, you know, uh, relation to it, fighting surprising. it, and also exposing it. And we're going to be discussing this with one of India's leading one of journalists who uh, in India. So I'm going to bring her in right now. Rather than perceptions, um, which are short-lived. Thank right you so much, Ajit. Let's go present, right? No, it's already presented. Just go to the other tab. You need to unmute that tab first. Okay. Hold on. By so then you, uh, then you see that he's... Uh, go ahead, John. You can yeah, do it. Just, John's uh, helping me out here. Dr. Shiva to join. Okay. All right, then you can... All right. Mina, how are you? Fine. Good. Good morning. Uh, I don't know what time it's in India. Uh, it's 8. Oh, what, what is it? 8 p.m. I see. Okay. Well, good to have you. Can you, can you hear me? Yes, uh, I can is, hear. is it audible? Yeah. Yes, I can hear you fine. Yeah. So we were just uh, uh, discussing a little bit about your background, uh, uh, Dr. Shiva. You're a multifaceted person with, uh, you know, so, so many interests in life that uh, I, I don't know which which area to pick up because you're a scientist, you're an entrepreneur, you know, and uh, you stood against uh, many things that we've been questioning ourselves, uh, everything from COVID to a lot of the things that people always say are conspiracy theories. You, you, you know, picked it up and uh, brought it in public and you've been also attacked for that. And uh, it's amazing the way, you know, to, uh, to watch your growth and uh, you know the kind of uh, background that you have uh, with so many uh, you know PhDs. You're a scientist. You're an inventor, entrepreneur, a Fulbright scholar who holds four degrees from MIT, including his, uh, your PhD in biological engineering. And also the fact that see you come from a background where your grandmother was a traditional healer, and your interest in medicine started from there. So do tell us a bit more about yourself, uh, your childhood, and your roots in India, Dr. Shiva. It's a very interesting, uh, by the way, Amina, thank you. It's good to have journalists in India who are independent journalists thank and you. are uh, doing work to discuss topics that's not conventionally discussed in the mainstream media. Because I think um, when you look at India, India's got, I mean, close to 1.8 billion people, right? 1.7 billion people is, is going to exceed China. Um, yes. And But, you know, India's economy is about $3 trillion, right? The GDP. The U.S. economy is about 300 million, and it's 22 trillion. Um, yes. So you have, you know, as a so I've been. Uh, I was speaking to another very interesting journalist, very smart guy, and he said, you know, uh, you know, he said, Dr. Shiva, one of the interesting things about your life is literally you represent, if you want to think about the melting pot, because I have been forced to integrate um, the very, very deep and ancient cultures of India in my own personal life, scientifically, uh, politically emotionally, right, sociologically, you can go at all the things, um, with growing up in the United States. Um, and I think I've successfully done that, but what merges out of that integration is um, the sum of the parts, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that's the reason I, I believe people have always wondered, hey, Dr. Shiva, how come you knew about COVID? Why did you call out Fauci first? Um, uh, why did you expose the Indian feudal system of CSIR, right? Why were you able to call out these things? Because I believe you 
develop tremendous power when you're able to integrate very vastly different types of constructs. You know, so on the one world, I can go and discuss with someone Siddha and Ayurveda and the yoga system. In the other world, I can go discuss, you know, quantum computing and the depths of engineering systems and do it in such a way that it's not, um, it cannot be ignored, right? Because typically when people talk about this, um, they get ignored because, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Now, in spite of that, I'm called a conspiracy theorist on Wikipedia, which is, by the way, a racist organization. Okay. And it's an absolutely racist organization. Um, and it's a casteist organization. So I want to really talk about what is a real caste system. Yes. And, the caste, and, and I think it's a conversation. You know, the Brahmins in India don't want to have it. And the non-Brahmins in India really don't understand it. But there is a real caste system. And it goes way beyond the United uh, way beyond India. It extends all the way at a very deep level, and it's becoming deeply instantiated in the United States right now. Um, and you can see it in it my also, own. It also was instigated by the British. Well, yeah, so we should talk about that. So let me give you my personal journey since yes, you asked please. about, you know. So if you, and I did this with another interviewer, but think about it, you close your eyes and you're a four-year-old kid and you're playing soccer on a hot, hot day in India, or football as we call it in India, or cricket, and you have this very deep and loving friend and you go to his home and his mother calls you a horrible word, spits at you and tells you to stand outside the house and calls you Shudra, okay? And gives you water in a different cup. You've never experienced this. You're just an innocent child. How would that make you feel? Whether you're a Brahmin, non-Brahmin, it doesn't matter what you are, just on a pure, uh, you know, human level. So that was my first introduction to this behavior. So my friend and I overnight, we're no longer friends. I asked my mother what this meant. My mom's name was also Mina. My mom said, oh, yeah, when we used to go to the well, we used to get shooed away like pigs. And then she went to explain to me about this thing called the caste system. Now, I got very deeply moved by that, but more um, I wanted to understand this as a child. So I started reading. You know, India used to have those old books, of, the very small comic books. It's a very cool system. I don't know if they have it, but these comic books, you could read about Subhash Chandra Bose or you could read about, uh, yes. you know, all different people, you know, it was very cool. So I started reading all of those books about every revolutionary leader I could get a hands on because I wanted left wing, right wing, you know? Um, and I really wanted to understand these systems of power as a child because it really, really hurt me and it deeply annoyed me. But in Bombay where I grew up, you had people of all religions, all castes, everyone seemed to get together, but there was this underlying set of circumstances. And then the other aspect of my life, and a lot of Indians probably don't get to experience this anymore, but not only do I, did I grow up in Bombay, but I grew up in a deep South Indian village where there's no running water, no electricity, um, you know, uh, dirt roads. You run. I mean, it's just like your pure village. Right. Very beautiful, very primitive. And my grandmother was a village healer in that village, you know, um, and my grandmother had no degrees, um, but her her house every day was filled up with people on Saturdays who would come to her asking her for help about their health and she had learned all of her methods from you know wandering sages and rishis where she grew up in burma or here and she would empirically i saw her help people she could observe their face uh, she practiced an ancient system of indian science known as samudrika lakshanam which to the foreigners caused face analysis and the theory was everything is reflected in everything else so your health is reflected in your pulse it could be reflected in your eyes in your face etc and then she would the the remedy she gave wasn't just food or herbs. Sometimes it would be a mantra or, or a massage, right? Yeah. Um, or prayer, right? 
or she would channel different spirits, right? So it's quite extraordinary. I thought everyone had a grandmother like her, right? Yeah. Um, but so I, so I was fascinated by, on the one hand, political systems, but also medical systems. What may seem like very different things, but if you look at the archetypes, a Vaidhir in the traditional word is someone who heals and also a warrior. So in many ways, I became that, a warrior to understand these systems of power and also wanting to be a healer like my grandmother. And if you look at many, many of the archetypes, if you look at Murugan or Karthikeyan in the Indian religion, he represents both those energies. He's the healer and he's also the warrior, right? Um, in the Catholic religion, you have, or Christian religion, you have the Archangel Michael, who represents yeah. both of those deities. And to me, interesting enough, those are the two deities I actually connect with. So anyway, I grew up in this very interesting circumstance. Um, it was quite extraordinary that my mother even ever got a degree as a woman coming from that, quote unquote, low caste environment and a time when women in the 1940s weren't supposed to get, they're supposed to stay at home and have babies, right? Yeah. And she grew up in a broken home where the father ran off with another woman and she became homeless when she was nine years, eight, nine years old. They, the whole family got separated. So, which is also extraordinary in India. You know, there's no sense of divorce in India. Yeah. So she always felt extremely outcast. She couldn't tell children in school that she didn't have a father because that was looked down upon. Right. So my mom was what became an extraordinarily independent woman. And um, when she died, she, you know, I mean, she, she had very, very interesting views, but my dad, on the other hand, grew up in Burma. He never saw a book until he was 12 years old. And he got trained by a local village school teacher under a mango tree with old, you know, whiteboard and chalk. And he ended up becoming one of India's leading engineers. I worked for a guy called Gopala Singhania, who sent him here for training. But my dad knew so much, they wanted to hire him here. So anyway, so my parents came here in 1970. And if you think about it, 1970, the United States uh, is undergoing massive chaos. It's got the Vietnam War going on. It's got the culture revolution taking place, the hippies, right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll is what symbolize the United States. And this very traditional Indian family uh, who came to the United States for a better life. Um, when I came here, I asked my dad, why did we come here? And he said, oh, there's something called freedom in America. That's all he told me. I remember getting off the plane in TWA and JFK, and that's what he said. So freedom, the freedom to think, the freedom to voice your opinion. My mom, on the other hand, said in India, you can get discriminated nine different ways in America, around three. She said, you're still going to have to work very hard. Uh, if you get an A, they're going to give you a C. So you're going to have to get like an A triple plus. So I worked very, very hard, you know, extremely hard, but not only academically, but also as an athlete. Uh, in 1975, when I went briefly back to India, that's when I realized the deep divisions between what I saw in America, paved roads, right? you know, a whole different world than what I saw in India. And that's when I decided, when I went back to my grandparents' village and I saw the stark difference that I should do something with my life. And I was 12 years old then. And I had a deep, deep, deep inside feeling that if I didn't do something, because I would have all these privileges that my grandmother, parents couldn't even afford shoes, right? Uh, they were poor village farmers. That if I didn't do something that I'd actually be a parasite. So I was very much moved by this injustice I saw, the stark differences in wealth, and this deep love I had for my grandparents. That's what really motivated me. And the fact that when I went back to the United States, I grew up in these very poor working class neighborhoods. A lot of immigrants who worked very hard were painters, uh, were landscapers, but all of them worked very hard. So those things moved me. So by the time I was um, 14, I had finished up calculus. 
was accepted into a special computer science program at New York University. 40 students were selected. I was the only Indian kid, the only dark kid, the only kid from New Jersey. And in that program, I graduated number one. This is 1978 when a computer would occupy two big buildings. And um, then I got a full- were you also Were you also following politics closely at that time or? Yeah, yeah I was very, I used to watch all the political shows. I was very, but I was interested in heroes. To me, people like Sebastian Rabos were interesting. I had a deep, deep, deep hatred for Gandhi because I thought he sold out, even as a child. I thought, how could this guy talking about, frankly, nonviolence when people are being beaten up? This never made sense. I don't think any child computes. If you're seeing a bully beat up someone, your instinct is to go protect that person, not say yeah. beat me some more. So, so in my deep bones, even as a child, I thought Gandhi was a, was a fraud. You know, it didn't make any sense to me. And uh, so I had a, a temperament which was different because it was, it was coming from this deep sense of justice, Nina. Okay. Yeah. And I think most young people have that. And they're put through a mill of propaganda, uh, which takes it out of them. But it's deep still yeah. in there. But I never lost it. I remember when I was, uh, I think, uh, very young, some guy came to my home and he was telling me about these people fighting in other villages because they didn't have any food. And I said, wow, that's pretty good. They're fighting. Oh, and then the, this guy tells my father, oh, your son is a communist. He's a Naxalite. <laughs> I said, it doesn't make any sense. These people have no food. That guy has food. What do you want them to do? Die? It, and my dad said, oh, my son will improve. He'll get better. But I never did. My hatred for injustice actually has gotten even deeper. And I have started to t think about the language that people do. But my life has been one of living this injustice and fighting it. It's not like... I'm some politician here talking about, oh, I'm going to do this for you. I've had to live it at a yeah. very... So, Dr. Shiva, yeah. uh, just a small point here. See, it was at this time that, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, during this time that the Iraq war started and uh, the Bush... Uh, well, that was 19, was... that was 2000 and that was early 2000, okay? Like 2007 uh, in that period, right? Uh, 19, uh, yes, 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 yes. So, so when the Bush, so that, so, and there's a picture of me actually protesting that at the MIT graduation, but the journey I wanted to share with you for the Indian audience listening as well, the U U.S. audience is that I was like born into this pit of having to f fight injustice as a yeah. four-year-old and it never, never exceeded. And the interesting yeah. karmatic thing for me is that the level of jealousy I've had to face in spite yeah. of my hard work. And I have to yes. say, that's what it is. Um, the level of racism I've had to face. And, and also, all of this is profoundly dictated on the fact I'm not a good Indian, quote unquote, a good Indian. A good Indian is supposed to move their head and do good work, but be a robot. This is a stereotype. And have your stuff stolen from you. And it's yeah. okay. And be abused and it's okay. You should be like Ganga Din, you know, in that, in yeah. that movie, Ganga Din, yes. right? So that's yeah. a stereotype, no different than they try to stereotype a woman, right? Who's mm -hmm. a blonde, like she can't be smart or a Chinese person just knows Kung Fu, right? These are very, very deep stereotypes. And um, that's, to me, that's a real racism. But when I came to the United States, I was very, very motivated by this, you know, worked very hard, invented the first email system before I came to MIT in a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey, which is 95% African-American and most white people are afraid to go into Newark still to this day, okay? That's why email was actually created by a dark-skinned four, 
14-year-old Indian American kid. Yeah. It wasn't done by the military industrial complex. The fact, there's not even any controversy here. The fact that many Indians question this, it exposes their own white supremacy. Absolutely. The fact that uh, Wikipedia fabricated a controversy, and this is not 1960, it's not the yeah. 1700s. This is a level of colonialism and casteism that's here. So when I came to MIT, Mina, I had more than enough credits to graduate MIT in two years. Okay. In and fact, in I think in uh, 1982, 81, uh, the U.S. government officially recognized you as the inventor of email, right? Yeah, I have the actual copyright, what would yeah. be the equivalent of a patent. I have, I'm the one yeah. who called the code. There's no controversy, yeah. but I never, I was, I never promoted it. You say? Yeah. Because Indians do great things, as do many poor working class Americans, as do yeah. many everyday people. People yeah. on the outside are actually doing all the work and people on the inside take credit for people's work. And that yeah. is never, in fact, right now, you have this fool called Robert Kennedy, part of the Kennedy caste system, who literally steals my material. <laughs> it is my work that exposed the fact that the government and social media companies are one in my historic lawsuit. And the entire media actually makes it invisible because my lawsuit, my work would expose that Republicans and Democrats are behind it. They want to make it Republicans versus Democrats, you see? But the idea of credit, Mina, I think is very, very important. People don't, you know, these Bollywood actors, Hollywood actors, all of them fight for their credit. Whose name will come first, Shah Rukh Khan's name yes. or the next person's name? And then they act all humble. But I can tell you all of these people fight tooth and nail for credit. Yes. But they will tell you if you invented email, oh, Shiva, why are you fighting for credit? Why are you so arrogant? Meanwhile, <laughs> their entire lives are built on Absolutely. credit. Yeah. Right? So it's a very interesting. So I think credit matters, Mina. And it's important. If you actually did the work, you should demand credit for it. Yeah. Because you are being taught not to take credit so others can steal it. It took me yeah. 40 years to learn this lesson because it's yeah. bred into many of the working people's psyches to be humble, right? But humility is not a good thing if you actually did the work, right? And the reason credit matters, it gives the child who's growing up, oh, who actually created this? Oh, was this done by someone up above or was it done by someone like me? You see, and that inspires people. So credit is very, very important that credit is established. Stolen credit to me is worse than stealing someone's money. It's like yeah. Can I me. ask you a question here, uh, Dr. Shiva? Uh, see, why does an Indian always wait for acknowledgement from the white man? It's a good question. You have to take it, right? You have to take what's rightfully yours. But this is not only the white man. This is a, it's a caste issue. So let me talk about that. You know, when I came to MIT in 1981, you know, I was listed on the front page of MIT among the 1,041 students who were coming in as three of the top students who had created email. Yeah. 100,000 people applied to MIT, 1,000 get in. So that's a 1% conversion rate. Out of those 1%, I was three out of that 1%, so 0.0003. You can work out the numbers. I may be off by yeah. one decimal point. So I was an extraordinarily dedicated student, and I worked my butt off. I earned what I had. Uh, my parents, I didn't like do something in school. And then I, my parents called MIT, gave them $2 million to let me in. That's how Robert Kennedy and the Trumps and all these people get into schools, right? They're, they, they're drug addicts. They're thrown out of school. And the, and the father, that's the corruption we're talking about. So, yes. so when I came to MIT, I was deeply interested in one of the areas I started studying with one of the noted uh, scholars of the time was a guy called Noam Chomsky. 
Um, so Chomsky took me as a student um, when I was uh, 18, 19 years old, which is extraordinary. Chomsky is the second most cited person in human history next to Jesus Christ. Okay. So he's one of the great scholars. And I started to study the origins of the caste system. It deeply hurt me. That four-year-old child was still within me. You know, yeah. I was hurt for my mom, my people, the entire thing. And what I discovered during this year project was the Indian caste system. Originally, first of all, a Brahmin is someone who actually works hard, studies the Vedas and works and, um, uh, you know, fights. Okay, you could say Ram was a, a, a Brahmin, right? People fight against evil. A Brahmin is not someone who you're born into, right? That's not what Brahmin really meant. And the caste system was initially a guild system, right? You had a goldsmith yes. who did gold work. Absolutely. That's, that's the... But over time, this caste system devolved into a very oppressive system in the Indian yeah. context, okay? Now, around the 8th century, um, there was a movement called the Bhakti movement. And the Bhakti movement was led by people like Sankaracharya, Ramanujam, um, and these people asked a very fundamental question. If there's equality in heaven, why isn't there equality on earth, right? Because if the goal is, okay, and uh, that, the Bhakti movement was about devotion to God, okay? That's what it was about, devotion to life. And that movement over time led um, to a political and a religious movement like the Protestant Reformation movement. And the movement basically said, hey, all these castes don't make any sense right? And between the 8th century to around the 15th, 16th century, the caste system was starting to break up. And the embryonic changes were merchants and Kabir, for example, who was a, a weaver and a poet was allowed into the Mughal courts, right? So yeah. you had this very important earthquake taking place where the caste system was starting to rupture and yeah. entrepreneurialism was building in India. Artisans and merchants were being elevated. And it is at that time, if you look 1457, right, is when uh, Vasco da Gama comes to, um, you know, uh, 1500s in that period when yeah. the Portuguese come. And then you have the French and the Dutch and the British, all of those. So there was an explosive enlightenment taking place, uh, Renaissance post, you know, around that period where people are now starting to break out of the feudal system, right? It, it was a decline of the lords and the princes and the kings, and it was a rise of this very new group of people called the merchants, entrepreneurs, artisans, artists, right? And that and those people were breaking borders. They were wanting to do trade. And so when people came to India at that time, when you really look at it, they came to trade. They came to trade with this emerging class called the merchant class, right? Artisans, et cetera. It was quite an extraordinary time. And if India had been allowed to go through that trajectory, India would have had its early capitalist uh, movement, right? And from the Adam Smith standpoint, it would have had its own growth. It would have had its development of even bourgeois democracy. But what ended up happening in India was the British being the British imperialists being who they are, colonialists, they saw an opportunity. They said, wait a minute, they, they because the kings in India were still there, but they were starting to decline. But the merchant class was embryonically coming up. The caste system was breaking down and they saw an opportunity. The opportunity that they saw, Mina, was why should we be supporting these merchants, why don't why do we need these middlemen? Why don't we go deals with the decaying feudal lords, feudalism? So capitalism was coming, feudalism was dying. So what the British colonialism did was something quite, quite insidious, is they went essentially backward in history 
and created an alliance with feudalism. Yeah. And that feudal alliance basically annihilated this growing progressive movement, truly progressive movement, progress, right? And in, after the Battle of Plassey in 1757 in West Bengal, you, what you have is the British now go from a trading force into an occupying force. And you also have to consider, if you read these books saying there was a war between the French and the British, but if you actually look at who was fighting, it was Indians fighting Indians. The, the French yeah. army was composed 95% of sepoys fighting yeah. the British who were composed of sepoys, right? So it's quite interesting. Yeah. How does an Indian give up his entire sense of his own being for his own people to go fight for the French against the British, right? So this is a very interesting, I mean, it's a whole nother topic we could have, but when the Battle of Plassey takes place, Britain occupies India. They become an occupying force. And for the next several hundred years, what the British do, in fact, after that, the British actually brought in the old draconian Brahmanical pre-8th century India. And they recodified India. So you see, the British were very clever. If they imposed British law on India, there would have been a revolt. So they imposed ancient Indian law, draconian pre-Sankarachara 8th century law. So the British, in some ways, didn't bring in Indian law, a British law. They brought in draconian. It, it would be like going back to the Middle Ages and saying, now we're going to bring Middle Age law into modern democracy. And that's what they did very cleverly. So they resuscitated the caste system. A lot of Indians don't know this. And they also did something else. They created the Indian Civil Service, which are all these babus, as you call them, or the civil servants. Yeah. And these brown men were more vicious to their brown people than the white men. Yeah. And they did this throughout Africa, too. If you go look at what occurred in Africa, same thing, right? The black people that the British put in power used to abuse their people. They were worse slave masters yeah. than the white men were because now they had some power, right? So over between the 1757 to 1947, what the British did was they actually built up this entire brown people running the entire Indian administrative class. And in fact, the British decided to leave India. It's very some They wanted to transfer power. This was pre-decided. It was too expensive for the British to fight these wars in India and skirmishes around the world. So this is where Gandhi was very, very instrumental. Gandhi was a racist. He was a casteist. He did nothing for the people in South Africa. He was fighting for trading rights in the Transvaal region for wealthy Hindus. He wasn't fighting for the poor blacks or the poor browns. <laughs> so please don't, let's not revive this person and write false history. And so when he was came, when he was parachuted in India, if you um, look at the, even if you look at the stupid movie Gandhi that was done by Attenborough, yeah. in that movie, you can see he's hanging out with Gokhale. Gokhale was one of the bootlickers of Indian history, right? He loved the British, he was an Anglophile. He brings Gandhi into his home. He gives him a spinning wheel. They resuscitate him from a man with a suit and a tie to a white robe, call him Mahatma, right? It was an entire theater production that was created. And the goal of that theater production was to, because in 1920s, there was a huge movement coming up to oust the British, like to actually have a good revolution, which India never had. Um, and those leaders were destroyed and put down. You know, people like Sebastian Drabos wanted to, you know, violently throw out the British, you know, just like the American revolutionaries had done. Um, he was suddenly blows up in an air airplane, right? Um, and so what you see is, is 1947, it's not a declaration of Indian independence. It's really yeah. the declaration of the transfer of power. In fact, that's what yeah. the document is called. 
So you transfer power from white men with crowns to brown men with white hats. And, and you have <laughs> Nehru, who was literally, you know, his consort was Edwina Mountbatten, right? This is how close they were, okay? Yeah. Uh, Edwina Mountbatten, to those of you who know, was the wife of the last emperor of India, which was Lord Mountbatten. So the prime minister of India, quote unquote, who became the prime minister in Nehru was actually banging, you know, Mountbatten's wife. Okay. Um, and then it, there's all sorts of very interesting intrigue between these people. Right. But the bottom line is that India's caste system perpetuated in these Indian civil service. India had this very stratified feudal class. Right. Um, and I would say probably Modi is probably the first one who did some breaking from that on some level. Okay. Um, even though BJP re really needs to understand that there is a caste system. Don't say there isn't. This is like the United States. The white uh, right-wingers, oh, there's no racism. And that opens up the opportunity for the left people to talk about racism but never really solve it. In India, you have the same with the uh, Dravidian yeah. parties. They take advantage of the caste, but they don't really want to solve it. And then they have the other people saying there is no caste. And then they create this false dialectic. So the problem never gets solved. So the real issue is, when I studied all of this, it became absolutely clear that uh, the caste system was fully alive in India, but it was exhibited by the elites of India who were the Indian civil service. So to those people outside of India, if you go to India, every government office is run by the bureaucrats. Yeah. And you have to get a civil service exam to go through. And interesting enough, my father-in-law, many now fast forward, that's what I realized as a kid and I figured all this out. I became an activist. You guys can see me fighting for food service workers at MIT, organizing massive five, 10,000 people's protests. So I've been a fighter all my life, in addition to being a scientist and an engineer, because I really hate these people, okay? Once you figure out what they're about. In 2000, fast forward to 2007, when I finished MIT, I did my thesis, I did four degrees at MIT, in and out, started about seven different companies, um, very successful companies, uh, built a company to about a quarter of a billion dollars in the in the AI field called email management um, and many other things. So in 2007, I, I'd done a very, very important thesis, uh, which was mathematically, I created a complete new technology to eliminate the need for animal testing. And that could integrate Eastern and Western medicine. That's what I did. Yeah. The ability to understand complex diseases on the computer and discover new products. And But I right after I finished my thesis, I was deeply motivated to understand Indian systems of medicine. Now I had all these degrees. If I did the research without them, people say, oh, well, you're just into India, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I went back to India, uh, did a two-year Fulbright and did a major breakthrough. I actually discovered that the entire system of Indian medicine is actually not a medical system. It's an engineering system. And um, when I came back to MIT, I created a whole course at MIT called Systems Health, uh, which has now become you know, a worldwide program uh, it truly integrates Eastern and Western medicine. But anyway, 2007 to 2010, when I finished my 2009, I'm sorry, when I finished my Fulbright, as I was getting ready to come back to the United States, the prime minister of India's office had discovered, heard about me, um, and they called me uh, the director of an organization called the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, which is the biggest scientific organization in India. It includes- You're talking about uh, Manmohan Singh. Manmohan Singh was the prime minister then. His uh, direct report was a guy called Samir Brahmacharya. And by the way, this organization is called CSIR, Council of Scientific yes. Research. It is the only other governmental organization that the prime minister is a president of. 
And this was by 1947 Nehru. The prime minister not only is the prime minister of India, but he's the president of CSIR. That's how close to one level below him is a guy is a director general. And the director general invited me to his office. I didn't know why. And he said, look, you're going back to the United States in 72 hours. We want to make you an offer. Why don't you help your motherland? And you're an innovator. You created email. You, you went to MIT. We'd like you to come in and now help unleash innovation across India. And I didn't know anything about this organization. I was married to a woman at the time whose father was a guy called PC Hota, who, was a, who had been the former head of the entire civil service. And he said, wow, he goes, and so the, the offer I was made was to become an additional secretary in the Indian government, which is a very high position. Um, and I was given a scientist level, uh, I think H position or A, whatever, it's the highest level position you can get, which people typically wait until their mid sixties. And I think I was 42 at the time. My father-in-law <laughs> yeah. sort of jealous and blown away. And he said, <laughs> you'd be a fool not to take this. It took me until I was 60 to get this. Um, <laughs> So I take that position, I'm given command of unleashing Innovation in India, made the CEO of this organization called CSIR Tech. So I proceed right away to start. And I, I was like, to me, it was like, wow, I could contribute back to this country, um, the work you know that my grandparents had done. So I'm given a beautiful bungalow in Marani Bag. I mean, yeah, to, to people who haven't been in Delhi, they're like the centers of Delhi where all the elites live. So in that elite area, in a seven acre compound, I'm given a bungalow cars, right? Treated like royalty. And um, in within two months, I figured out the entire plan. And um, and then the director general had said, you know, we're going to give you a budget so you can execute this plan. And that was my agreement. I said, I need to be able to do this. Never got my budget. They just wanted me to sit there like the MIT guy, be their, act, yeah. be their brand ambassador. Because CSIR was under massive scrutiny because there was embezzlement of $35 million for nearly since 1947, the people of India are like, where did all this money go? Why isn't there any innovations in India? Why is it after <laughs> billions of dollars? There's no real patents. Many of the patents were found to be fraudulent. So there was a lot of scrutiny. Um, the director general himself was under scrutiny for embezzling $35 million. Okay. No corruption. So that was the highest level. I came into. So here I'm there and I realized that they didn't really want me to do anything. I was a window dressing, but I actually yeah. wanted to do stuff. I went and visited all the labs. I would be rolled out the red carpet. And I came up with a very strategic plan how we would support these scientists. So, you know, across these labs, there's nearly 4,000 scientists, very, very smart people. And what I kept hearing the common theme was in across all of these labs, there were really good people doing great research, but their bosses, the directors of the labs were feudal lords, like the old British feudal kingdoms. They would suppress their own people. They didn't, they were jealous if someone invented something. They thought they would get credit. So they would actually mm -hmm. annihilate them. And I'll give you one example, Gobind Korana. Everyone may want to look at his name. By the way, to the Indians listening, prior to 1947, India had two Nobel Prize winners. After 1947, India has zero Nobel Prize winners. Okay. Mm -hmm. So why is it during British colonialism, India had Sarsivi Raman and Bose, right? Two people mm -hmm. won the Nobel Prize. But after the British leave India, zero Nobel Prize winners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Forget the stupid climate change, that thing. We're not, that's not even a Nobel Prize, okay? I'm talking about scientists, okay? In medicine, physics, zero. Just think about that. So India had two Nobel Prize winners during British colonialism, but zero afterward. And this occurred because all these Indian 
who took over these scientific institutions were incompetent. They were very, very jealous of their own people. So I'll give you an example. Gobind Korana, who was who ended up winning the Nobel Prize in medicine at MIT for medicine, couldn't get a job as a lecturer in India. Okay, which is one of the lowest positions. He had to leave India to go to the United States, and then he wins a Nobel Prize because of this oh. feudal system. So what I started seeing was every lab I went to, I'd see amazing people doing great stuff, but their the director of the lab would suppress them because they were part of a, uh, I think there was a, Samir Brahmacharya was a Bengali. So all he did was put all of his Bengali guys in, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was this kind of feudalism. And so um, I, I decided I would write a report on what I saw. And I wrote a report talking about the good things and what I observed. And then I, I did a draft report and I wanted all the scientists who I'd met because I had all their email addresses to get their feedback. When I send that email out exposing this corruption, I'm immediately banned, thrown off. My email account is stopped. And within 72 hours. How long did it take for you to find out about this and act? About five months. Okay. Five months. I figured it out. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I move very quickly. I mean, people who know me, you know, I work, I need about five hours sleep. I figure out stuff very, very quickly. So within three months, I figured out, I put together, I rolled out my plan of how we would give small, very small grants to people who are doing stuff. If they went and got a customer, they would do more. I have a very different model of innovation. It doesn't wait for VCs. You go get one customer, you work out if your product works or not, then you get more customers. A very, very powerful entrepreneur model. In fact, it, I think, uh, they started adopting that recently when when uh, Modi came in. All right. So anyway, so I saw all these ills. So I a after putting out that report, I get thrown out, thrown out of my uh, uh, th told I to evict my home. And my dear mother shows up to Delhi from India. She goes, you fight because I've experienced this corruption. My in-laws at the time run and they have more connected to me. So they had no patriotism for India. But because of my deep patriotism, not only for India, but these people of India who, you know, I was a son of in many ways, um, I decided to fight for them. I was under death threats. So my father-in-law said, they're going to come arrest you. The day before that, I'd given an interview on primetime India TV. You can go find it. And I exposed all of it, exposed the report, everything. Hindustan Times did a front page article. I think it said something like hired and fired in five months, something like that, you know? <laughs> So anyway, um, when I knew they were going to try, come try arrest me, I took a third class train all the way from Delhi to the border of Nepal, walked across and then came home. And when I came home, the editor of Nature India asked me to write an article of my experience, which I did. Nature is one of the most important uh, journals in the world. I said, why America innovates in India may never. And what is to be done? And I shared in June of 2010, I believe, or nine, I forget the... 10, I saw the half of the building, the CSIR central headquarters burned down. And because the oh. director general was under suspicion of embezzlement, the entire accounting area burns down and the three bookkeepers are killed. Very convenient for him. Okay. Oh God. So I wrote about that in my article. I said, this is what I observed. This is what I saw. I said, there's amazing people in India, but are, they're under the yoke of this feudalism. <laughs> and that article gets published, then the Prime Minister's Office of India threatens the editor of Nature India. <laughs> and she calls me and she says, Shiva, they're threatening me. I have to pull down the article. Okay? I can, I can just imagine Manmohan Singh threatening someone. 
<laughs> yeah, his office, you know, his office did it, right? Absolute fact. It's all recorded. All right. Yeah. So I had come back. So so that's the context of India. Um, there were various articles written. You can go look at it. Um, but that's the truth. So I could have sat as my former father-in-law said, he goes, why did you do this? You would have become the next, um, you know, uh, science minister of India. Just shut your mouth. Just hang out, party, hang out, just be, a, but I couldn't do it. That would have been one trajectory in my life. So you have to understand it would have been a very, very lucrative trajectory. It would have been a very posh trajectory. Um, you know, it would have been a, a, quite interesting, you know? Um, but I chose not to do that because of who I am, you know, that I believe in truth, freedom, and health, you know? So I came back to the United States in 2000 and late 2010. Um, the head of the department at MIT, uh, Doug Laufenberger, gave me a lecturer position. I went back to my company, Cytosolve, and we decided we were going to grow that. So I was doing a lecturer position at MIT for free, right? Um, and I was teaching a course called Systems Biology and Traditional Medicine. It was the most powerful elective course. And I was showing people the integration of Eastern and Western medicine to MIT PhDs, MIT engineers, outsiders. Very, very powerful course. Um, and in the middle of that course, something interesting happens. I was teaching it for several years. In 2011, my dear mother, Mina, is dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis. Three years to live. When, when we first came to the United States, my mom worked in a factory where there were these asbestos-like fibers. Huh. And so in a suitcase, my mother had organized my entire uh, history of the invention of email, you know, all the copyright. The editor of Time Magazine wrote an article um, after reviewing it called The Man Who Invented Email. And you can go look at it. Front page Time Magazine on their online edition. It goes viral on November of 2011. Because the facts are obvious. When I was in that medical school as a 14-year-old kid, I converted the entire inner office mail system. We're not talking about simple sending of text messages into the electronic version, named it email, and in August 30th, 1982, I'd already been given the copyright, but I never promoted it. But in 2011, 33 years later, this journalist was very interested. He wrote an article called The Man Who Invented Email. And after that article went up to Smithsonian, the number one museum in the world for history, or in the United States at least, wanted all my materials. They did a big ceremony in February of 2012. It went into the Smithsonian, February 16th. And that day, a big report comes out in the Washington Post, Dr. Shiva Idre honored as the inventor of email. The next day, the shit hits the fan. And what do I mean by that? Well, it should, it should have been an occasion for celebration. I'm the epitome of the American dream, right? Instead, a racist historian writes an article said, this guy didn't invent email, he's a fraud, because he already put this other white dude who had glasses and a beard who didn't invent email, he did simple text messaging, and which is like a early caveman version of WhatsApp which they had conflated to be email because a company he was later working on was Raytheon, one of the biggest defense companies in the world. And they used yeah. the at symbol as their logo. And they yeah. had made this guy as their brand ambassador when yeah. he in fact admitted that he only spent 15 minutes adding text to the bottom of a file. It was never called email. It was never email. It was at best a caveman version of Facebook or WhatsApp. That's it. I created email, the system, it was deployed. You don't need the internet for email. You don't need the ARPANET. And they had created a fake history like they always do. So when my stuff went to the Smithsonian, it was like a bomb went off. It was like finding a skull in Africa that put reoriented the or true origin of human history. So when this happened, 
all these phone calls coming to MIT, Mina, saying, how dare this guy say invented email, fire him. And I wasn't even getting paid at MIT, okay? But I was running one of the most popular courses. Um, and I'm looking at this, I'm saying, okay, I got four degrees from MIT. I've won every award. I've been on the front page of MIT for inventing many other things. I never wanted the fame or fortune for the invention of email, but I see the vitriol, the racism. Yeah. One, one person, um, Gawker Media said that called me an asshole and a dick. Hmm. Another blog said this curry stained Indian should be beaten and hanged. <laughs> okay. This is height of racism. Yes. Open racism. And what's really interesting, and not one Indian said anything about it. Not one Indian. Yeah. And that that is revealing unto itself. Out of the 1.2 billion Indians, mm. not everyone was, uh, I don't yeah. know if he invented email. You know, brown people don't invent things. They work mm. for a white man. That attitude. Mm. Oh, I thought that white guy did it. It is truly white supremacy. Yeah. The yeah. Indians are more white supremacists. Mm. Every working class white person who read it obviously invented email. Yeah. But Indians couldn't accept it. Because it's cognitive. So a small, uh, a small interruption here. So, uh, at such moments, such frustrating moments, how did you feel What's when very, all the attack was on you? Well, it's a very. You are asking a wonderful question. So you have to remember when I look back at my history. This is 2012, and I'm looking back at my history. Okay, I fought for Indians in India, fighting CS, and this was two years ago. I exposed yeah. the whole feudalism, and then before that. I protested against the U.S.-Iraq war. I ran massive demonstrations, making sure food service workers got proper wages at MIT. Then I look back. I was the one who ran the biggest protest at MIT to make sure women and poor whites and blacks could get into MIT. I created, helped create programs. You can go look at it. It's all there. So I've always been a fighter for others, Mina. Now, this was an interesting journey. It was a very, very, the reflection was very deeply painful no different than that four-year-old kid. Why, why is this woman spitting at me? It is a very different thing where you can fight for others, but now you have to fight for yourself, the injustice yeah. that is being done to you. It is a very, very deep journey because you have to start, because, oh, okay, am I fighting for my credit? You go through all these mental things. Oh, did I invent email? And I've talked to women who get raped. When a woman gets raped, she thinks, did I do something wrong? Did I wear the wrong clothing? Did yeah. you know you go? So I was being physically raped of my credit. Yes. And I was starting to question myself. Wow. And it was very interesting. A young student of mine, very smart kid by the name of Devin Sparks. He was my student. My, he was very upset. He said, Dr. Shiva, I'm going to help you. He went and read every paper, scientific paper that had been written from that, from 1978 backward. Maybe I didn't invent email. Maybe this fool did invent it. And lo and behold, he spent like three days in the MIT library sleeping. He finds a document written in 1977, written by one of my quote unquote rapists who's attacking me in 2011, saying, oh, he didn't invent email. This was a collaboration of the military. No one person can invent anything. That's the other way they take away your credit. Okay, no one person can do it. Bullshit. Right. He finds a document written by that guy. His name is David Crocker. I call him David Crock of shit. David Crocker <laughs> in 1977 had presented himself as a leader of electronic messaging. And it, he had written a paper in 1977 saying it is impossible to create a system like this. Yeah. You see, they were doing simple text messaging. 
They, in fact, thought secretaries could never use a computer. They didn't think you could create inbox, outbox folders. It was too complicated. You would have to create an easy-to-use interface. But that's what I did. These old white dudes who were in their lab coats thought what I did was impossible. So when we found that document, we exposed them. Then you see even more vitriol come. People go on. Now they had to go to <laughs> Wikipedia and destroy everything I'd ever done. Yeah, It's like Stalinism. Terrible. Terrible. Absolute. And then you have the Indian community, which is absolutely silent. If I was Jewish, and this has been done to a Jew, every Jew would have gone it. ballistic. This is anti-Semitism. This is horrible, right? And then I had to reflect, maybe if I was white and I had blue eyes and my last name was Einstein, I'd be on every stamp on the planet because I did invent email as a 14-year-old kid. And why is it people accept Mozart? Oh, Mozart was six years old and he wrote these symphonies. And I had to start wondering, I never considered myself a genius or a prodigy, but the reality was I did, but were, I was a pretty smart kid. But I was born in this brown skin, which gave me a serious fucking disadvantage. And it's wrong. And I, and I did it in Newark, New Jersey, which is poor black people are there. And I did it at a small medical college. I did not do it at MIT, but I won every bloody award at MIT. I was on the front page when I won the Fulbright, when I won, you know, um, uh, Echo Mail, my first AI company, front page news. But when I said email was not done at MIT, not in this caste system. So what, uh, what sort of freedom are we talking about? What do you mean? In USA, when they can't give you your due credit, what sort of freedom are you talking you about? You nailed it. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about this. So. And what kind of freedom are we talking about right now while there's a hearing taking place in the United States Congress? And I'm the one who discovered through my hard work, the entire government collusion. And they invite Robert Kennedy to give the testimony when he's a drug addict. He hates women. He's a philanderer. And they're trying to make him a hero because his last name is Kennedy. That is a caste system. That is a bloody caste system. And I deserve the working people of this country. You can relate it with the babus. Right. That's that's the babus. No different. No different. Now, the problem they have with me is during 2020, because as a scientist, because I could see the future, I exposed Fauci. I was the one who saved, I would say, hundreds of millions of people's lives. I got a friend of mine um, in India. I'd spoken to her a while. She said, Shiva, do you know your video on vitamin D went everywhere in India through WhatsApp? And I still get hundreds of emails still today. People saying, thank you, Dr. Shiva. Your vitamin D protocol saved my life. So I did that while Robert Kennedy was promoting lockdowns, while Trump yeah. was promoting lockdowns, while, yeah. while they were promoting masks, yeah. right? I was the first one to put my reputation on the line and I saved millions of people's lives. I was the one who said fire Fauci. I was the one who exposed <laughs> the entire election. You recognize, yes. The even the, because I did the hard work. I work as an engineer, yeah. as a scientist. These people don't see the future. They watch which way the wind blows. So the point Can is- Can I ask you- can I ask you a question yeah. here? Yeah. What do you think about Bill Gates? He's the obvious establishment. I mean, I exposed him back then, right? Bill Gates did not invent anything. You go back, look at his life in 1980. He's part of the caste system. Okay, Bill okay. Gates, Robert Kennedy. Bill Gates was had written a compiler for BASIC. His mother was on the board of some company that knew IBM. They said, hey, do you know an operating system? He called up a guy, bought it for 10,000 bucks, and then recoded it, okay? That's or, or resold it essentially. He was more of a trader, all right? And but then he gets elevated as though he's some genius, all right? But they are all part of a caste system, and we're not part of that. 
the real caste system. So the real caste system to all the Brahmins who get upset when I say caste, oh, you're, you're attacking us. No, sh really shut, shut the hell up and listen. <laughs> By the way, I would like to actually create an actual Brahmin certificate. I'm thinking of doing that. Brahmin, you get a Brahmin certificate if you actually follow the great ancient Vedas, which said you fight for other people, you know, you actually study, you know, what, it, and then, and then you decertify all the people claim they're Brahmins. And in fact, many non-Brahmins should also be decertified as non-Brahmins because they behave like Brahmins. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's a funny thing I want to do, but the point is that we have the real caste system is a finite set of people who actually don't work for a living. They steal other people's stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then it's an inside game. You look at Tucker Carlson in the United States. He's part of the caste system. You know, he acts like he's fighting for others. Him and Hunter Biden are like this. So they create this fake dialectic. Jared Kushner has done as much corruption as Hunter Biden. But then, he, you know, they create a dialectic. It's Trump versus Biden. They're all part of the same caste. And that doesn't include you. And that's the real caste system. So you see, they thought they would co-op me, Mina, that I would go to MIT I would, you know, I'm like a perfect candidate if I follow their rules for Republican or Democrat, but yeah. I can't follow their rules because you figure out they're part of a caste system. But how would you, how would you be able to challenge such a vicious system? Well, you go back and look at history and you have to apply scientific principles. There's a book I have called right there called System and Revolution. Okay. So my life has been trying to merge. Remember, go back to that four-year-old kid. Why is there the caste system and this medical system? Now, the biggest discovery I made out of my Fulbright when I returned to India was that the entire engineering system that you learn at MIT and PhD work called control systems principles, there's nine of them, match one to one with Ayurveda and Siddha. Ayurveda and Siddha are not medical systems. And yoga is not a medical system. It is an engineering system to understand the whole body. So I was able to merge and create a new science, which integrates ancient systems of Indian medicine, believe it or not, which engineering system science. And that became this program I created called Systems Health. And so first of all, if you want to, if you go back thousands of years, Mina, and you told someone, we are one day going to build something called an airplane. It's going to be flying in the air. There will be toilets up there. There'll be food. They'll be, you'll be serving chicken curry and, uh, having wine up 30,000 miles. Would anyone have believed that? <laughs> Absolutely not, right? What do you mean flying? Only birds fly. And then if you had told people, you know, we're going to have one day in our homes electricity and light, they'd say, Absolutely not. That is created by God, right? Well, when we understood Bernoulli's principle, we did the impossible. We created flight. When we understood Maxwell's equations, we brought in, we created electricity and motors and all this stuff, quite extraordinary. What people would say was impossible. Today, people say it's impossible that 8 billion, that the, the, oh, there will always be the condition that 0.001% of people, that's just the way it is, Shiva. You just have to accept that. There will be a caste system. There will be the Kennedys, you know, no different than saying you, and I can't accept that. So my journey, like Bernoulli, like Maxwell, like Newton, I have figured out the fundamental scientific principles, how to destroy that concept and to create a movement. I mean, and I say this in a very profound way, just like Bernoulli, just like Newton, without, now I have to learn how to speak, not with humility, but with what I've done. 
And that has been the truth, freedom, and health system that I've created. You see, truth, freedom, and health are no different than pitta, vata, and kapha, and are no different than transport, conversion, and storage. Comes in. So I've created a new science, which gives us a foundations of human liberation, truth, freedom, and health. It's not a movement. It's a science. And when you understand the science and you link it with the other six principles, you become a warrior. You become a scholar. No different than you becoming an aeronautical engineer or a electrical engineer. And that is what, tr so truth, freedom, and health uh, is fundamentally a system which is founded in science. And that's what I used to teach. But when I ran for politics, so I was able to integrate the system of Ayurveda and the system of engineering physics. But when I ran for politics, I said, wow, I see these same principles occurring in the political system. So if you look at the political system, fight for freedom, if you look at the engineering and medical systems or the engineering systems we use for innovating, you know, an iPhone or everything, and you look at the health systems that we have in India, they're all the same principles, these nine principles that I've uncovered. And when I uncovered those principles, I realized, wow, when you look at the great revolutionaries, whether it be Thomas Paine or Lenin or Che Guevara or uh, the founding fathers, all these people are revolutionaries. You may disagree with them on their particular viewpoints, but they were revolutionaries of their times. They never had an understanding of system science. Lenin did either. He made some interesting observations. And when you bring in system science, now you have scientific principles to shatter the swarm. And uh, I could play a video for you. I don't know if I can share a video here, uh, but there's a small video I can share for you that really describes what I've created. Would you like to, me to play that? Yeah, sure. I don't know if I can share here. Yeah. Um, I think, um, hey, John, can I share a video? I don't think I can. Can I share a video on her? Oh, I can present, right? Yes. So I should probably, hold up. I should stop sharing here, right? And I should go back to hers and share my screen, right? Yep. So I share my screen. This is that, right? Is that me? That's the other screen. That's yeah, that, yeah that's your screen. Yeah. Uh, this, right? Yep. So Mina, you can see my screen here. Yeah, you can do that. John, should the sound automatically play on this? Yes. Okay. So Mina, I'm going to play you a video which really is a video that I did when someone said, what is this thing? So let me play this for you. Ready? Um, can you we hear? have allowed our country. Can you hear that? Mina, were you able to hear that? Hello? Loser? No, but no, but when I played that video, were you able to hear it? Oh, okay. Hold on. Let me play it here. We have allowed our country to be taken over from within. And the end goal is you will have a homogenized world where we will become slaves because there is a condition among the elites that really thinks they're better than you deep down inside them that you don't deserve the freedoms you have. They don't. This reality is what people need to wake up to and we need to all unite working people. There's only one movement that can do that. And that is the movement that we started creating here in Massachusetts, the movement for truth, freedom, and health. Look, I've been a student of politics since I was a four-year-old kid, studying revolutionary movements, left wing, right wing. There's a physics, there's a nuclear science to destroying the establishment. To build a bridge, you need to understand Newton's equation. You need to understand the laws of gravity. You need to understand Poisson's ratio. There is a way to build a revolution. And that's why I put this together. 
My goal is to train a army of truth, freedom, and health leaders. We don't need followers like social media. We need leaders, but they need training because the educational system does not teach them history, nothing. So in three hours, that's what I've started doing. That's the solution. We got to train people first with understanding what a system is, the dynamics of all systems that affect nature. The second is understanding the interconnection between truth, freedom, and health. Freedom is the ability to move freely, communicate freely, talk freely. Without freedom, you cannot convert ideas hypothesis into truth, which is science. And without freedom, you can't really get to truth. And without truth, you make up fake problems and fake solutions, which means you destroy our health. And without health, which is the infrastructure of us and our body, you can't fight for freedom. Truth, freedom, health. Third concept is it has to be bottoms up, working people, people who work uniting. And what the right wing has done is whenever you say working people unite, that must be communist. Meanwhile, they've let the Democrats run unions, which suppress workers, completely corrupt. But when you look at the arc of American history, it's been when working people came up. We need to go local. Every solution I'm coming up with as a part of this movement, we're giving the science, which is the truth, and then we tell people what they can do on the ground. Like with election fraud, you don't need to wait for some lawyer. Our goal is to train people to go local, to go local, to go local, fight locally. Forget lawyers, forget politicians, Forget celebrities, you've got to learn politics, and there is a science to it. They lock us down, we should be ready to shut them down. And the fourth part of this principle is the not-so-obvious establishment. So when you look at a system, there's always something that disturbs you from getting to your goal. Well, the biggest disturbance is the not-so-obvious establishment, which are those people who claim they're for you, on the left and the right, the Al Sharptons who tell black people I'm for you, the Tucker Carlsons. Do you think any true anti-establishment person will ever be on Fox or CNN? I don't think so. They both mislead working people back into the establishment. Without this solid understanding of political physics and theory, you're screwed. You're going to follow on the left wing, Bernie Sanders. Oh, he said something. Or Robert Kennedy. Scumbags. Or you're going to follow some right-wing talk show host. They're not going to lead us to liberation. It's us. We're building a bottoms-up movement. And that political physics, it's a nuclear science of change. Bottoms up. We have to organize to understand that there is people who talk a good game and then look at what they actually do, left and right. I'm sorry, Sean Hannity may say some good things, but I don't see the urgency in his voice to get something done. And it can only come when you weaponize yourself with the right knowledge. You need to be able to identify a rat. You know, Christ didn't go after the Romans, right? It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who screwed him up. His own, quote unquote, people. And that's where we're at. So these four concepts I've built into a curriculum where people can go to truthfreedomhelp.com and it's an educational program. We need to train people in political theory. You need to have physics. And I've created that curriculum. People need to get educated. We need to get educated fast. And within a half an hour, an hour, I can teach people two years of MIT control systems. I teach people those concepts. Then I apply it. Anyone can understand it. And then you say, oh, I got to build a bottoms up movement. They have to get politically astute and then they have to go locally and act, not sit there on social media. They have to act locally, defy locally, do civil obedience locally, but with knowledge on how to build a movement. And the Senate campaigns expanded to the movement for truth, freedom and health, and they can find it on truthfreedomhealth.com so people can sign in, they can get access to a bunch of videos. If they want to take a course and become a truth, freedom, health leader, I offer a full scholarship there, but we want people to make a commitment that they'll study, that they'll get certified, that they'll go do activities on the ground. So go to truthfreedomhelp.com.
Thursday. So what's happened is we've now, so around the COVID time period, I must have done three to four videos a day. About a half a billion people know about our movement now. They can't suppress it. That's a problem that they have. So when I was deplatformed off Twitter, right, for exposing the government backdoor portal, and Twitter is the most important platform for politics, right? Now on Twitter, my, it's, it's a new type of censorship. Elon Musk is not fighting for free speech. He's worse censorship than ever before. They put someone like me on, but they put you in a cage. It's a digital cage. It's an apartheid cage that he has created. But the fascinating thing is we already got the story out. If I travel anywhere, I was in Dubai, random person comes running over to me. They go, oh, Dr. Shiva, they, we know what you did, right? Thank you for your COVID stuff. So the word is out there. We just had a, a woman recently who was um, in, uh, what is, uh, she was in, um, uh, she, she's from uh, New Zealand, Christchurch, New Zealand. And um, she said something interesting. She said she went to a political event. And at that event, um, she asked people, there must have been a thousand people there. How many people know Dr. Shiva? This is in New Zealand. She said over 50% of the people raise their hand. You see, what they're afraid of is we got our word out there. And so the only solution they have is to make me invisible. So they, the, the uh, oops, did we lose you? John, what happened here? We lost Mina. Did we lose her? Look at the other tab. This one? That's her? Yeah, you're not in her, her broadcast. Which one is her broadcast? This is her. One second. Um, we're still live no, here. No, no, no. That's our broadcast. You're not in her broadcast anymore. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is that us? Free space to continue? Some features on StreamYard. Oh, okay. Let me look at that. But um, uh, yeah, you're not in her. her okay. So let me come back to us, right? Yeah. So we suddenly lost her. So anyway, um, we may have to get back into her, John. So yes. so anyway, everyone listening, we lost our journalist from um, Mina from India, but we'll continue. We'll wait for her to join, right? No, no, no. You need to get back in her broadcast. Okay, John. Sorry. Yeah. Um, she doesn't join ours. We have to join hers. So, oh, I have to enter back into her studio? Okay, great. So, one second, everyone. I think we have to enter back into her studio. Right there? No, that's ours again. Okay. So, I'm in mine, right? Yes. So, where's hers, John? I, I don't know. You somehow got out of it or something. Um, we need to get the StreamYard link from, from the, I had it from the calendar. Okay. All right, everyone, just hold on one second. Can you just send it to me, John? Okay. So um, so while we're waiting for Mina, what um, I wanted to let everyone know, those of you listening, is that um, the bottom line is we have a, a huge opportunity because the movement for truth, freedom, and health exists, because we uh, are known globally, um, people understanding these concepts, people really getting to understand what is a movement, um, how do we build a movement is something that people do not want people to understand, because once you understand how to build a movement, you have a very, very different opportunity um, to uh, I'm trying to do two things. Everyone here, um, uh, we have a very, very different opportunity to win because you start to understand the physics of how to build a movement. And that is what we want to offer people. So the important thing is we don't have to waste our time trying to figure out what to do or how to do it because um, we have fortunately been able to create that. One second, I'm going back into Mina's broadcast. Um, so that's why I wanted to play that video. And in spite of the problems that we have understood, we need to also 
I mean, uh, sorry, something happened there. Yeah, no worries. I think we're back. Let me see if I can bring you back in. Yeah, there you are. Okay. Can you see us? Yeah. So, sorry, yeah. sorry about the glitch. No worries. What I was just telling people is that the fundamental realities that we have created, Mina, the reason I wanted to play that is that over the last, um, you know, three years, we have created this movement. And the movement begins with doing the work of a scholar, right? You have to understand the physics of how these movements work. Without understanding the physics, people will say, oh, I'm going to support this guy or that guy. The goal here is for the individual to become a leader. So we've created, you know, truthfreedomhealth.com. I, all that stuff I used to teach at MIT, the system science, which people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for. I used to give it away for free and no one wanted it. So what we did was we said, okay, pay us some little money, about a hundred bucks. And then if you take the course, you can give it to as many children as you want. I went to India in March of last year and I gave it away to 1500 village students. We want to make people become philanthropists. So you take the course as an adult and you give it away everywhere. But once people understand the science of systems, it is literally like, I keep saying this, like Prometheus bringing fire. You see the elites have nuclear, a nuclear weapon, which is a knowledge of systems. And we're walking around with sticks and stones. So that's the first step. Second is people need to get on the ground. They need to start talking to their neighbors. So uh, Dr. Shiva, yeah. what is your vision for a new uh, kind of USA? Yeah, it's a good question. So let's, uh, or for that matter, a, a world, right? If you think about it this way, going back to the invention of email. So a 14 year old kid in Newark, New Jersey, with a little bit of infrastructure, creates email. Now, what were the conditions of that? And that will answer your question. The conditions were a loving family. The conditions were very dedicated school teachers, people who made sure that I could leave high school and go work for 10 hours, right? They changed the rules. They fought for me, fighters. So a loving family who's supportive is giving you, you know, uh, not only a loving family, but the disciplined family. A lot of the families today don't even teach their kids any discipline, nothing. They just put the kids out there. Um, they don't, you know, so a, a, a construct where you have some structure, um, teachers who actually cared. And then the third thing was infrastructure through a mentor. I had this mentor who, and but that was a triangle. It's not the triangle of the military industrial academic complex. It's not I had to go to MIT to invent email. It's not I needed to have, you know, right now they say innovation occurs from the military industrial academic complex. In fact, there's a guy called Walter Isaacson who wrote the book on Bill um, Gates and Steve Jobs and all these people. In the middle of the fabricated email controversy, he writes a book and he's a racist. He writes a book talking about the digital revolution in, in the, knowing this controversy is going on. By the way, just a FYI, in 2016, I found a lawyer, Charles Harder, who looked at my case and we sued Gawker Media, sued all these people, and I won a million dollar settlement and all those defamatory articles were taken down. By the way, no one will talk about that either, okay? Because we won. They don't want to talk about the victories of people from the quote unquote lower caste, right? So anyway, the reason I bring that up is email's invention took place in the middle of Newark, New Jersey, where nothing's supposed to come out of. You would call a swamp, right? of crime, et cetera. But it took place because I had the support of a family. You had the support 
of good teachers and some infrastructure. I was given access to some computers. It wasn't billions of dollars venture capital money. This is why when I was at CSIR, I said, we don't need to start innovation centers in Gurgaon or Delhi or Bombay. That's not how innovation comes. Innovation is a weed. It's a weed. If you want to genetically engineer food, you're going to get crappy food. So we don't really have great innovation anymore. So in fact, here, I'll just make a small interjection. Uh, a lot of the sages in India, very wise sages, would say that genetically modified food is very bad for you. And that's exactly what you said. So uh, you, that's another point that's very important that you fought for. I fought for in 2012 to 2016, I did four major, five major research papers, which exposed at the fundamental level what genetic engineering does. And all the major news people, including Joe Rogan, who follows me, had two opportunities to put me on and he suffocated it. You see, because they all are part of the, their upper caste. They're part of the yes. same caste that spans from India to America. Let's be honest here. That is a real caste system. And so, but they are trying to genetically engineer everything, genetically engineer food, genetically engineer innovation, genetically engineer health, genetically engineer the economy, genetically engineer everything. And what you're getting is a very controlled artificial system. Yes. And so the genetic engineering is not how great innovations come. By the way, a 14-year-old boy is the one who invented TV, Philo Farnsworth, which RC and Stanford. And now he didn't have to deal with the skin color, but he dealt with the fact that he did it outside of Stanford, right? He did it in a small farm. A 14-year-old boy invented TV, just like a 14-year-old boy, you're looking at him when I was 14, invented email. But the circumstances of that is what we need to understand. It didn't occur in the umbrella of the upper castes, bat, you know, their ground. You see, when I went to MIT, MIT really didn't do a lot for me. I did more for MIT because by the time Harvard, MIT, Yale bring people in, the students have worked their butts off. They actually put the label on it and they benefit from these hardworking high school students. That's what's really going on. It's a racket. And so when I went to MIT, I had already done all this. In fact, I was so bored of my computer science classes. They were, it's like a mechanic building a car and then you're talking about, a you've already done it. But what I did learn at MIT was how to fight the establishment. That's what I learned who the establishment is. And I learned their ways of how they operate. And I've been fighting them ever since. So that's the important thing to understand. So the kind of world and the country we need to create, whether it be the United States or India, is a world where you create the conditions for bottoms up movements to take place. And that is what we're trying to do with Truth, Freedom, Health. My running is a catalytic event because people before have the obvious establishment, which is one part of the upper caste, and the not so obvious establishment. You see, they create their own theater. Trump is as though he's fighting Biden bullshit. They're all the same, right? If you take Kennedy as though he's fighting them. You know, during COVID, he promoted lockdowns. Robert Kennedy promoted lockdowns, but then they parachute him in because they don't want this, my face out there because I'm the real fighter. They have to create a fake fighter like they did in India with Gandhi, like they did in the United States with Martin Luther King. He wasn't the real yeah. fighter, Malcolm X was. So they create the fake fighters, Mina, that they can control. So what I want people to happen through my run for president is number one for people to realize that they should have self-respect for themselves and overcome this dynamic of how the upper caste, the real caste system works. That is what my run for president is about. It is for people recognizing, oh, there is a caste system. It, it's not just occurring in 
India, Brahmins versus non-Brahmins. It's much deeper than that. It is a finite, it's a, it's a global caste system now. It's a very, as I did in the Swarm video, it's 100 university presidents working together with 100 actors, be they in Hollywood or Bollywood, right? Working together with 100 hedge fund managers. It's a global swarm. And they make sure that they create the theater. In fact, they create their own opposition. They create the Trump-Kennedy opposition. <laughs> and yeah. what's powerful, though, Mina, is a movement like ours has never existed in history, which is exposing this true. Imagine if a movement like ours had existed in 1920 in India. We would have exposed Gandhi. Yeah. India would have had a real revolution. If in a fact, movement... there's something more about uh, Gandhi that you know should come out, but it's not being allowed to come out. There's a book about him. Well, well, the reason it's not allowed to come out is because it'll expose he, that he was part of the problem. Yes. He created yes. the problem. Okay. Yeah. And they do. They want to keep the dialectic left and right or obvious establishment and their own fake fighters. They create their own fake yeah. idols. They ensure that the true people who represent the bottoms up movement are actually made invisible. They'll in fact create controversies among their own crowd, right? Because as long as a controversy is created, you get visibility, right? Th what they do is they want to make the real people invisible. Now, the historic yeah. opportunity we have is I got my name out there in spite of them because of all the things, good things I did. We ran our movement. So they can't suppress Dr. Shiva or our movement now. So the only thing they can do is make us invisible. And that is why... What is, what is the kind of support you have? Well, I just told you, you know, if you look at visibility, by the way, you know, here's a here's a bumper sticker we have. We have millions of people starting to get these and they're going to put it on the back of their cars. OK, so millions and millions of people know about us. I would say nearly 70 to 80 percent of the American public has heard of Dr. Shiva, period. And so they ha so, so they have to make that. If I was there, I would vote for you. Well, I don't I think if you're a working person, <laughs> thank you. If, if you're a working person. Um, and you think your choices are the following, the obvious establishment on the left or the right or the not so obvious establishment. Now, what's happening is, Mina, they're so afraid because typically the not so obvious establishment manipulates the masses. Whenever people yeah. start rising up bottoms up, they bring in the not so obvious establishment. You see, first is they just shoot people like they did in India, right? Or they yeah. did in the United States or they did it in Germany fascism. But when that doesn't work anymore, they actually create their controlled opposition, like the Gandhis, right? Like the Martin Luther Kings. But when you raise people's consciousness to this dynamic, it's over. You see what yeah. I'm saying? I had a very interesting guy who was a medical doctor, very smart guy. He had seen an interview with this fool with the charlatan Kennedy with a guy called Joe Rogan. Okay. And he said, Oh, my God, I thought Kennedy was a great fighter because they say all the right things. And then he saw an inner, then I did my own podcast exposing Rogan and exposing Kennedy as this upper caste people. And he said, after I saw your video, he goes, I didn't sleep for two days. He goes, I had cognitive dissonance. He goes, because I was going to donate money, but everything you said was absolutely truthful. But see, that truth has always never been, the fake truth comes out, you see? So that's why it's so powerful what we're doing. Our movement is global now. We have people yeah. in India. We have leaders in India and Europe and Africa, all over the planet. And this movement now is expanding where we're, so, you know, every Thursdays, 
you know, 11 a.m. And to, to your audience, 11 a.m., we did it for people in India and Europe and also 8 p.m. Pe uh, for people in the United States and Asia Pacific. I do a two to three hour open house. It's a lot of time, but we bring people from all over the world. And you can go to vashiva.com slash orientation and people come there and you start realizing, wow, there's these other really incredible people who get the subterfuge of Gandhi did, who understand that Trump and Kennedy are really part of the clique. And that is a very enlightened crowd of people, Mina. And people yeah. in India, the 1.8 billion people in India should wake up because it, the generation needs to overcome the obvious and the not so obvious establishment. We need to really write the true history of India, the true history of America, right? And that is what my candidacy really represents because I represent a real Indian and a real American in some ways, yeah. you know? A lot of our viewers are from USA. What's and, that? Uh, a lot of our viewers are from USA. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, to and, uh, what, one of the other things we're challenging, Mina, is yes. that the United States Constitution, when it was first written, said that you had to be a natural born citizen, meaning you had to be born in the United States. But that was in 1780, 1787. But then the amendments came and then the 14th Amendment was passed, which said a naturalized citizen is the same as a natural born citizen. You cannot discriminate. So I have every right to run. So that's a big thing. I'm the first time a naturalized citizen is running and educating people that the Constitution is absolutely clear on this. And again, people have been afraid to run. People are like, oh, you can't run. No, absolutely, I can run. And I filed a preemptive lawsuit in federal court already. And in that lawsuit, I've clearly asserted that the Articles of Confederation said that, but the 14th Amendment, so what I'm doing will help the other 22 million naturalized citizens in the United States recognize, oh, I can run for office, for president even. Yeah. And this is quite historic too. So again, I'm fighting to educate people that the constitution already, so a lot of people are ignorant, oh, he can't run. We don't want foreigners running our country. They speak like that, right? But if you're a naturalized citizen, you're equal. There cannot be two, you cannot have a caste system in the citizens. You can't say, oh, Dr. Chavez, a naturalized citizen, he's here, and I'm a natural born citizen. All citizens are equal. That's what the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause. So this caste system is very, very elusive. You know, it's very insidious. It weaves its ways in and people, that's what we really have to fight. Kennedy and Trump, Joe Biden, all these people are part of the upper caste. Yeah. And they do not represent the rest of us, right? So there you go. What, what do you what do you think of world leaders like Modi ji? You've met him. What is your opinion about him and the way he's yeah, so India? So you know, India has uneven development of capitalism. So let's if you go back again, you have to go back and study history because you have to understand this as a movie, right? My life is one frame in a frame that goes back to my parents, their grandparents, and a whole bunch of people. Your life is one frame. So if you look at the election of Modi today, right? And you go back to what I just shared with you, even the short history going back to the eighth century, right? Caste system was breaking down. The real, the, the, the real purpose of yoga and spirituality was to fight. It was to bring heaven on earth in many ways. It wasn't just there to talk about some yoga and meditate. Yeah. Meanwhile, go back and have injustice. So if you follow that all the way through, um, the Gandhi dynasty was part of that caste system in many ways, right? I mean, Nehru, I mean, this is right in front of your face. Nehru, Indira, Rajiv, 
you know, some skips and bumps there. And then this cocaine head, Rahul. I mean, the guy's an idiot, complete bloody idiot. You know, they're trying to make him as always an intellectual now. He grows a beard, does these marches. It's so foolish to watch this, right? They're trying to create an idiot. Now, what I do like about Modi and is that at least there's a sense of nationalism. Indian nationalism never existed. It was bled out. And I believe you have to go through the process of nationalism before you can even talk about internationalism. Yeah. It's like more saying, hey, I have to take care of my physical body. It's one thing going, I'm going to help everyone. Meanwhile, you don't even take care of your own physical body. So yeah. India, now the nationalism can take two paths, cultural nationalism, which is, oh, let's go back and, you know, it's like a backward nationalism or progressive nationalism where you say, hey, look, we are a people who are beat up and suppressed. We demand our light and our day. That's a progressive nationalism. A cultural nationalism would be, OK, let's go back to the days of blah, 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 when whatever. Right. It's a backward nationalism. So I think, um, you know, Modi coming to power was good to the extent that it destroyed this old uh, feudal casteism of the Gandhis, right? And that's what they were. Um, so in that sense, there's some progressive pieces. You know, when I, um, Modi at least had the uh, courage to recognize me as the inventor of email when I came back, right? And every Indian should recognize this because yeah. if you're an Indian growing up today, what is your mentor of who's an inventor? Oh, Elon Musk, bullshit. The guy's, everything he's done, he puts his name on stuff. Ooh, Bill Gates. Why isn't the picture of that 14-year-old boy on an Indian stamp, or for that matter, on a stamp? And every Indian must ask that. So you have to always have pictures of white people or some, or in fact, even Chinese people's names aren't on anything. Why is it all white people? And more importantly, why is it an Indian person who gets, if, if when I show the picture of that boy who invented email, you can see people, they get all, they start moving around. Oh, how, what do you mean he invented email? I would say the visceral reaction to my picture as a 14-year-old boy inventing email. And if you have a visceral reaction to that, you're a white supremacist and you don't have to be in a white skin. So if you're an Indian and you're watching this and you're reading Wikipedia's bullshit and you have a visceral reaction, more than likely you're a white supremacist. Yeah. And that is my definition. Because, you know, John Medlar, who's a working class kid, he sees the facts. He'll say, yeah, Dr. Shiva invented email. It's obvious. But I would say there are more Indian white supremacists. There are whites who are white supremacists in the United States, just Absolutely. by pure numbers. And so that's a very, very important thing to understand. So Modi, at least, you know, in a big thing, he said, yes, it was a uh, Indian from, you know, at least he's doing that. Right. So I respect him for that. I respect him for the fact he's talking about yoga. You know, he created a center to do research in alternative medicine. You can't. I didn't see Indira Gandhi do that. I didn't see any of these other guys do that. So I respect him that. I don't know the infrastructure of the entire party, yeah. but I do like the fact that, you know, certain elements of RSS stood up against the caste system. Yeah. That's a good thing. Gandhi was supporting the caste system. So, but we have to look in the long frame of Indian history. India's had this uneven fight. In 1900s, had we had a good revolution, had we kicked the shit out of the British like America did and thrown them out, had every Indian lost one son or daughter fighting, India would be in a very different situation today. But India didn't, that revolution never took place. Hmm. So that's why, you know, we have this deep set sense of lack of nationalism and lack of 
why an Indian, when he looks at another Indian, walks the other way? You know, seriously. And hopefully, I think the youth in India will change that. But the invention of email is very important to this. It's not about me. It's about, whoa, yeah. this was done outside of MIT. You don't have to go to MIT or Silicon Valley to create something. Innovation can occur anytime, any place by anybody, Mina. And that's the central thing. And innovation is about your divinity. Creating something is your expression of, of God in many ways. So if you only say a few people can innovate, that's the real caste system. If you say, oh, you have to go to MIT and then you become a nerd or you can become a dropout out of Harvard or then you're cool, then you're a brainy guy, that's the real caste system. Or you go to IIT and then you're an innovator. Bullshit. Yeah. Innovation is occurring every microsecond. It's in everyone's DNA. So that's really the core of this. So when I expose Kennedy, when I expose Trump, my hatred against them is because they are really the upper caste yeah. and people bowing down to them is you're you may, might as well go bow down to the devil you're bowing down but at least but at least people say that see trump is a rich man so he doesn't care about money he cares more about the nation is there any truth to it well that is a theater that's not true though okay yes. let's look at the facts that is a very interesting story you see they do not want real leaders coming from below so they create fake heroes let's look at actually trump I used to support Trump and I actually connected the dots. I had to expose him. Trump, number one, and this was in 2020, I had to do this dirty work. He ensured that Fauci never got fired. He made sure okay. lockdowns took place. He made sure $7.9 trillion got printed. In one term, Obama took two terms. And most of that money went to the elites. 600 billionaires, why small businesses were getting destroyed, made um, you know, $2.3 trillion. I wrote, wrote a letter to Trump, his ex-wife delivered it to him. I said, do not lock down the economy. Do not shut it down. Quarantine people and give them vitamin D, C. It was all laid out. He said he was against Big Pharma. He took money from Big Pharma for his inauguration. Okay. So the point is when you add up the facts, you can say whatever you want. Look, Charles Manson, who killed a bunch of people, said all sorts of stuff. Anyone can say anything. This is what people think. What did you actually do, though? What did you do when March of 2020 was taking place? You have to look at people's actions. And you have to stop having amnesia. People have a lot of amnesia. Well, he said that then. People forget. So those in power bank on your forgetting. And they make heroes of the people. So you're always looking above for your savior to come. Okay. Everything comes from below. You plant a seed. You don't plant it in air. You plant it in the soil. It comes from below. Okay. Everything comes from below. Everything comes from Mother Earth. Right. So that's what we need to understand. Things come from below. Um, someone said, uh, Ma Martin is asking you, uh, what is Dr. Shiva's take on Putin and Zipay? Yeah. So, I mean, this is again long, but if you look at Russia as a people, it was, a, I have great, great respect for the Russian people. You know, it was the Russian people who defeated Hitler. It wasn't America who won World War II, right? It's the fact. 20 million Russian people fought Nazism. Two million people died in one battle with pots and pans fighting the Nazis. So the, in the, in the blood of people in Russia, they know the fight against fascism. It's in their epigenetics. So 
when you look at and if you look at Putin's family, so to the extent, but to the extent that you see when the Russian people in the eastern part of the of Ukraine were very upset when the United States installed, they did a coup. The United States did a coup in 2014 and installed a Nazi there, right in Ukraine. And so the Russian people rising up. And the fact is that Russia, look at Russia and Africa. Russia is mineral rich. It's got oil, it's got gold, it's diamonds, everything. So the imperial powers look to Russia as British imperialism looked to Africa. And, and they would love to rape and pillage Russia, in my view. They would love yeah. to rape. They've already raped and pillaged Africa. They created all these nations and they have everyone fighting. And that's really their goal for Russia. That's why after 1991, the United States was never supposed to, NATO was never supposed to go east of Germany. That was a promise mm -hmm. of George Herbert Walker Bush. But they kept yeah. going more. They, they've, the goal is to surround Russia. And remember, it's not like Putin is some angel, right? But the reality is Russia represents a huge opportunity for imperialism to dominate it. Now, China at least had a good revolution. Uh, Russia had a good revolution, you know, the Bolshevik revolution. You may argue some of the things that took place because of U.S. imperialism and world imperialism. But at least the working people at one point in history rose up. Chinese revolution was a little bit different. Xi Jinping, um, you know, he runs state capitalism. It's not communism or socialism. It's where the government has completely fused with corporations. And that's what the U.S. is headed towards openly. So he runs a state capitalist organization, a fascist organization, right, which surveils and watches every pe people. And China's going to have difficulties because you don't have any freedom there, right, at a very fundamental level. Um, so that's what I think about, you know, China. But uh, Russia is intriguing because... Um, in the blood of Russian people is their history of, as a working people fighting fascism. That's a good thing. Dr. Shiva, do you believe in astrology? Well, um, you know, the Indian system uh, does a lot of mathematics and understands these patterns. Um, what I can say with my own personal experience, there is some very interesting patterns, okay? Um, we have to understand there's an inner action between information, matter, and energy. And I'm speaking from a systems perspective, okay? Information, matter, and energy are thoughts, energy. Um, the subtle energies of different things influence us. Um, you know, in physics, we say there's these four energies, right? The weak forces, the gravitational forces, yeah. electromagnet. So we have probably no fully, I mean, we haven't integrated them. So there is some very profound things you see in how the Indians were able to predict things, understand planets, etc. So I can say that there's a lot of research that should be done there. And there's some interesting observations that exist. And empirically, some things are quite fascinating, you know? Yeah. So that's what I can The reason why I'm asking is because if you've consulted an astrologer, perhaps he could have told you is your future. Well, so here's a second part of that. So you may have these subtle energies which influence you at a, if you believe you are a being of information, matter, and energy, your consciousness affects that. Now... There's another aspect to this. Once you raise your consciousness and you vibrate at a different energy, you can also shield yourself from these gross forces too, okay? Where you determine your own path and your own destiny. So both are taking place. Destiny is taking place and your okay. creation of your own destiny. Both are occurring. It's not one or the other. Um, and a lot of the works of Ilya Pogroni 
you know, won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1957 exposes this. So we seem to think that we live in a deterministic world or in a chaotic world. The reality is both is taking place. Out of chaos, uh, determinism can occur under certain conditions. So I believe both are occurring and there's a unification of science. That's what system science allows us to do, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you and can do have- Do you meditate? Do you meditate? I do, I do, yeah. So I learned to meditate when I was uh, 12 years old and I do meditation almost all the time now, okay? But there are different types of- Do you believe in a, in a certain God? Um, I believe in energies, you know? So one, you know, I have a great reverence for the energy of Christ, but you know, the concept of an avatar, right? I have a great reverence for certain deities, you know, like the deity Murugan, you know, um, because they're both the fighter and the healer. And I identify with that. I think e within each one of us is, are, are these different archetypes uh, and their energies, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Someone says, could That's you speak it, uh, uh, something about Bollywood? Yeah. 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 You want to take that one? What does it say? Could, uh, you... Could, could you please speak about SSR or Bollywoodians? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Dr. Well, Shiva, what's yeah. happening in Bollywood is very similar to what's happening in Hollywood. Uh, I don't know whether you're aware of it. It's the same kind of dark, uh, you know, dark um, secrets that you find in Hollywood. And this movie, Sound of Freedom, is reflective of what happened, what's happening in Bollywood as well. So in case yeah. you'd like to answer. Yeah, I think, look, I think the reality is if you go, there's a swarm video I did. You may have seen that. It's a 15 minute video. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, see it. Mm -hmm. But we have to recognize that there's not one point of where the quote unquote, the elites or the quote unquote, the upper caste are. They're everywhere and they're distributed. They're telepathic. They communicate from Hollywood to Bollywood, from India to America. You know, they're a swarm, but there's only a small set of them. And what I want to the Illuminati? Oh. What's that? Is that the Illuminati? I don't know what you I call them the swarm. Okay. 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 You know, I did a video on this because it's a systems yeah. approach to representing this. Okay. Um, okay. We've I watched think, that. Huh? We've watched that. Yes. It's, it's a good video. Everyone should watch it. But yeah, at 15 minutes, everyone will understand it. But the issue is how do we overcome it? Right. Um, the reality is this. And, the re and then that's why truth, freedom, and health is so important because we've created the system to do that. But yeah, so if you think about those in power will do all sorts of insidious things, right? Be it child trafficking. One of the interesting things with the movie Sound of Freedom, um, you know, I was the one, I, I talked about this three years ago. Um, when this came out, people said, hey, Dr. Shiva, as a scientist, how could adrenochrome get created? And I actually did these, a systems biology model of it where if you have stress your body creates adrenaline and if you have anxiety your body yeah. will create um you know, well it'll create uh oxid oxidative species and when they combine you will create adrenochrome it's yeah. interesting enough that video has been up for three years i did a short version of it youtube took it down okay after the sound <laughs> of freedom movie came because yeah. they don't want an actual scientific yeah. engineer to they get don't want the truth to come out yeah. yeah well they don't want people in my position as a stature as an MIT PhD to talk about that, right? But I think the reality is there are a billion different ways the elites abuse us. When, by the way, when I came to India on my Fulbright, there was an interesting guy. He was one of the top five billionaires of India. He invited me to his home and he had been in jail for something, right? And I said, and he said, look, Shiva, in my world, it's not about money. He goes, the trading that we do is women's weapon and drugs. That's what he said. 
Okay. He said, women, weapons, and drugs is the commodities that we trade in. Yeah. And I thought it was quite interesting. Women, weapons, and drugs. So yeah. he said, it's not money that we trade in. Yeah. There's one more issue that uh, Rashmi is speaking about uh, with uh, Hope uh, requesting you to take up the issue of animal abuse, especially farm animals. Yeah. So, um, look, there was a time when, you know, by the way, uh, if you look, you know, in the hunting model, you hunt an animal and you eat it, right? Um, you, um, you know, you don't abuse animals. One of the reasons I created Cytosol, which is this technology is to completely eliminate animal testing. And we're doing that. We make discoveries um, in science and medicine without, you know, killing animals. And that's what Cytosol is all about. Um, we want to eliminate, there's no reason, frankly, to kill animals, even for pharmaceutical, more and more, even the FDA saying animal models have nothing to do with human models. The factory farming, which is, you know, it's very sad when I'm driving through India, or even here, a friend of mine just sent me a picture, and you see all these chickens stuck in these coops, driving in these smokes, and then people are going to eat those, it's just garbage. So I'm a big proponent in one of our, you know, our campaign for president, number one is healthcare. In the healthcare model, very simple. We're not going to wait to be president. You take care of your immune system and everything solves itself up. On the environment, we tell people to support local farmers. Local farmers, you know, local dairy, not these big factory farms. Number three, when it comes to education, we have to teach people the science of systems. Number three, when it comes to governance, we have to educate leaders, new leaders, and we teach people a leadership program. When it comes to the economy, people have to understand how to save. What is a balance sheet? What is a profit loss? And we teach people every Wednesday, every Thursdays at 8 p.m. We actually teach people one of these things. So that's our political campaign. We're not waiting to be elected. When it comes to, um, you know, innovation, I actually teach people how to innovate. So in all of those areas, our campaign is not waiting to win. We're teaching people as we go. Now, winning the presidency, I will just I would probably do interviews like this. We educate people. A president cannot do anything because it's all corrupt. But what a president can do, someone of my background, I can educate 8 billion people all day with that bully pulpit. People have to rise up, bottoms up, Mina. In fact, that's exactly what people are commenting on. They're saying that, see, what you're speaking is so educative and uh, uh, the way you're speaking is so informative. Uh, so thank you for that, Dr. Shiva. You're welcome. Uh, very uh, <laughs> lovely chat. And uh, so, so nice to see someone being so explicit about things. Uh, thank you yeah, for me, your let, time. To, to my viewers, let me just say, Mina uh, Das Narayan is a uh, an, an independent journalist in, in India. At uh, she's a rare breed. So I decided to do this uh, interview because I think it's very, very important to support independent journalism. Uh, anyone so listening to this, if you know other independent journalists and podcasters, I would rather drive views their way than <laughs> to the cabal of the grifters right now, you know, the Joe Rogans, the Tucker Carlson's, all these people are basically part of that upper caste. They're not independent journalists. They, they may put the word independent, but they're not. And it's evidenced by the fact they're so afraid to put me on their shows. I mean, I have all the credentials, but they're the upper caste, you know, denigrating me and all of you. When they, when they make me invisible, they're actually spitting on everyone. And that's yeah. why I want to drive views to um, everyday other people. So, Mina, if you know other independent journalists, Absolutely. let them know. Absolutely. I'm into anyone listening, and that's what we want to do. And uh, Dr. Shiva, we don't want this to be the only one and uh, only interview. We would love to have you uh, speaking about different topics. 
and also uh, telling us what uh, what you would do be doing you know in in the future in for USA. Yeah, what we can do, Mina, we should do another. Uh, just we can focus on the platform. Okay. Yeah. I think this version will I think give your audience an, a deep understanding of who I am, and now we can talk about real solutions. Um, and those solutions can be done everywhere here or in India, everywhere. Look, the world is becoming a very closed world right now, yeah. very, very tightly knit. And it can go into serious darkness or serious light. And what we've created here with our movement for truth, freedom, health is very different than the force of power, profit control. And that is why they want to make me invisible. But we're not going to allow it. So this podcast, other interviews, and it's going to happen. Us doing this podcast is a bottoms up movement, right? We're not waiting for coverage by mainstream media. They're never going to do it because I want to destroy them. So why would you want to cover me when I want to destroy you? Okay. You're not going to do it. So, <laughs> so it's great to hear you at the way you speak. It's, it's very, very, uh, not only interesting, but educative. And uh, thank you once again. Dr. Thank Shabha. you, Mina. Be well. And best good to, night. Best to you and your audience. Be the light. Thank, thank you. you. Um, so to everyone um, listening, thank you, Mina. Be well. So to everyone listening, that is Mina Narayan, and she's a wonderful independent journalist. And to all of you listening, please know that we have to build a movement. My running for president, and the way you can support, by the way, our running for president, um, I do not like to beg for money. Obviously, if you want to give money, great. But I want to ask you to do something much more simpler, okay? Something everyone can do. Um, and that is you go to shivaforpresident.com and get this bumper sticker. Why is this bumper sticker important? Well, first of all, it's about five bucks. But more importantly, you put it on the back of your car, on the back windshield. And you can be anywhere in the world because, you know, I'm, I'm running for president, but it's really powering a massive global movement for truth, freedom, health. And that's what that little swoosh is right there. Sorry, right there. And you put this on the back of your car. You can be in India. You can be in Africa. You can be in the United States. But this is about you um, becoming an activist because 100,000 people per day will see this, more views than you will get on quote unquote social media. So that's the opportunity for everyone. If you go to shivaforpresident.com, um, John's working on a wonderful shop. You can get all this great merchandising. You can get a t-shirt, get a bag. Why is that important? Because if you're walking in an airport and you see another truth for health person, you can build community. Because look, here's the bottom line. When someone's wearing a Nike shirt, you don't say, oh my God, you're into Nike. No, but when you see one of our stuff, you're gonna get excited because you see one of you. So get a t-shirt, get a hat, but do it because it's a way to build community. But more importantly, volunteer, get on the ground, hand out flyers. We have some wonderful flyers coming out. You can hand these flyers out in your local community. Start engaging people, tell them, hey, there's this, really cool guy that's running. He's one of us. And we have this movement, Truth, Freedom, Health. That's what everyone here can do. And it's simple and it's easy, but for God's sakes, do not give money to these freaking not so obvious establishment scumbag charlatans because that's who they are. And that's why our run for United States president is so historic. So get involved um, and be the light. Let me uh, finish up with my uh, uh, video which will inspire you to get involved for Shiva for President and Truth, Freedom, Health. Who would have ever thought I'd be running for President of the United States of America? I was born a low-caste untouchable in India's caste system, a system of aristocracy, oppression, and racism. My name is Dr. Shiva Ayadure, 
I'm an MIT PhD, a Fulbright scholar, a scientist, engineer, entrepreneur and inventor. My family and I left India to come to America on my seventh birthday. I grew up in the working class neighborhoods of New Jersey, playing baseball, mowing lawns, painting houses and coding software. My friends and neighbors are blacks, Italians, Irish, people of all races. As a 14 year old, I wrote 50,000 lines of software code to create the world's first email system and was awarded the first US copyright for email, recognizing me as its official inventor at a time when copyright was the only way to protect software inventions. I did that long before I ever came to MIT, revealing that big innovations can occur anytime, any place by anybody. Growing up, I saw politicians dividing us by race and religion in both America and India to have us fighting each other while they remained safe in their gated communities and in their playgrounds of Hollywood, Martha's Vineyard and Silicon Valley. I'm a fighter. I fought racism and exposed their imperialist wars, fought for workers and put my life on the line against global corruption. I never wanted to run for political office. All that changed when I saw working Americans as never before being duped by the establishment and the not so obvious establishment. Across left and right, we were being sold out and made to forget why we came to America and why America existed. Lawyers, academics, billionaires, celebrities and politicians, elites, Clintons, Kennedys, Bidens, Obamas, Bushes, black and white have hijacked America. They printed trillions for their friends. They delivered crumbling infrastructure, corruption and racism. They transferred trillions to themselves, dividing black and white, fear-mongering and fake science, lockdowns and censorship, dirty air, food and water, pushing drugs upon us, making us sicker. We've been sold out. One set of rules for them and another for us. We deserve a warrior with a history of courage in putting everything on the line for you, who believes in you, not them, who has created a movement bottoms up for truth, freedom, health. I've exposed their lies at the right time, never waiting until it was popular. I've exposed their false gods who exist to lead you back to them. I've exposed their fake science of lockdowns and masking and provided you solutions to fight them and win and protect your immune system, saving millions. I exposed Fauci, galvanized the fire Fauci campaign when others remained silent. When they stole our election, we sued the government and Twitter in our historic 2020 federal lawsuit, exposing in bare view the government and big tech censorship infrastructure, the unholy alliance between government and social media companies. Where was Elon and his grifters? They stood by the sidelines and did nothing. They did not use their megaphones to help us when it could have made a big difference. Now our movement grows for truth, freedom, health, independent of all of them. Every day millions are learning the science of systems, the knowledge the elites do not want you to have, so you may learn how to think, stand up and fight independent of the establishment of left and right and their fake heroes. Now it's time for you to join the movement to win back America, to win back truth, win back freedom, win back your health. That's why I'm running for president of the United States. This race is about you. This race is about truth, freedom, health versus power, profit, control. We've had enough. They think we'll fall in line and vote again for their lawyers, celebrities, billionaires, and chosen ones from above. We choose our heroes from below, from the rank and file, who do what is right at the right time, not when it's convenient and popular. They can never represent us. What America needs is a movement by the working people, for the working people, who are educated, organized, decentralized, and fight for independence from their systems of control. And that movement exists. It's ready for you. We don't need them. We need us to go bottoms up, neighbor to neighbor. My journey, your journey are all the same. It's our time. It's time we had one of us. It's time to win back truth, freedom, health, to win back America. Be part of this historic movement all the way to our victory on November 5th, 2024. If you're an American citizen, 
Pledge your vote now for Dr. Shivaya Duray, the independent candidate for U.S. President. No matter where you live, you can be a part of this. Volunteer as little as 20 minutes a day. Don't delay. This is Dr. Shivaya Duray, and I approve this message. Paid for by Dr. Shiva for President. All right, everyone. I hope that was valuable. Um, be well, be the light, get involved, and let's win this fight. Thank you, be well. Some, most of these supplements are